scripture reading will be in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60. Acts 7, 55 through 60. It reads, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Thank you. Be seated. Thank you, Tim, for reading our scripture tonight, and thank you, Stan, for uh, leading us in those beautiful songs, such beautiful singing, and I'm so very grateful for the uh, very fine way the congregation responds and worships in singing and in prayer, and now the study of God's holy word. We're very happy to have everyone with us. If you're visiting, we're happy to have you, and we hope that you'll stay long enough to become better acquainted, and if we can help you in any way, please let us know. We want to help you in every spiritual way possible. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, we hope you'll do that tonight. If you have, but you've been unfaithful, I hope you'll repent of that. And I hope through the course of our study this evening that it'll be such an encouragement to you from the Word of God that you'll want to come and obey the gospel if need be or respond by repenting of sin. We continue tonight our Sunday night seminar on the preaching of the New Testament. And it's really a, a challenging subject, and we come tonight to the preaching of Stephen. And as I, as I normally do, as our custom is, I have an outline prepared. If you do not have one and you would like one, please raise your hand, and these deacons here in the auditorium will make sure that you have a copy. It, it is a record of the points that we will be making tonight, though, as you know, I don't limit myself just to the outline. But you'll be able to follow along. Perhaps it'll be more meaningful for you. You can file it away and keep it and study it on another occasion. And that way it'll be all the more helpful to you in your studies of the Bible. We try in our Sunday night seminars to drill down a little more in depth with regard to the topic. And for that reason, I think it's helpful to have the outline because one might get lost in some of the details. And I don't want that to happen. And so we try to look at the, the subject with more depth uh, than we would in a sermon. A sermon tries to motivate, a sermon tries to teach and to explain, and of course we do that in our Sunday night seminars, but we try to look more at some of the things that a sermon might not address itself to. And we've been looking at the sermons of the New Testament. We studied the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And we've also studied Peter's sermon to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. Peter, as Jesus said he would, opened up the doors of faith to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And we notice how that both Jew and Gentile obeyed the same gospel and did it in the same way. That they received the same benefits of the gospel of Christ, forgiveness and remission of sins. And the hope and promise of eternal life. Tonight we study Stephen. 
And this is a rare or unique sermon from the New Testament for a couple of reasons. One is, it is not given by an apostle. Most of the sermons of the New Testament were by apostles. This man, Stephen, was a disciple of the Lord, and he was not an apostle. And it is also unique from the standpoint that it is the longest sermon in the New Testament. And so we have 50-some verses here of material which we will try to analyze and look at. We will look at its content. We will see exactly what Stephen was trying to say. And then in turn, by that, we'll make some application to ourselves, just as any good preacher would. Stephen did that for his audience, and we want to do that for ours. Let's look, first of all, at the background of Stephen's sermon. And as you've come to realize now, we must understand something of the circumstances, the situation that brought this about, so that we can understand better what the sermon is about. The church is growing, and the Jews are very concerned, Acts chapter 6, about the growth of the church. In fact, there's a very interesting passage in Acts 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, this angered the Jewish people. and They didn't like the fact that the church was growing so well, so they began to dispute over these matters. That within itself, I think, is probably a good thing. In fact, the word dispute in this instance means to question and to reason and to argue about. In and of itself, that's not a bad thing. It's going to turn into a bad thing. Verse 9 of chapter 6 tells us how that they disputed with Stephen. Now, it doesn't really tell us why they were so upset, other than, I suppose, by implication, the text is saying the church was growing so rapidly and doing so well. But we see that in verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, or as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And that's our word. They were disputing. They were arguing. You'll remember that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 and verse 15 were talking about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and they were discussing back and forth. That's the same word that we have in our text tonight, chapter 6, verse 10. They were arguing about it, but it was used in a good sense at this particular point in time. And surely Stephen's motive was pure. He's not trying to castigate them. He's not trying to have any personal victory here. He's not trying to point or jab any fingers at them at this point or any other point through the course of this great sermon, but he's trying to reason with them that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what Stephen was saying that caused them to dispute, but I have an idea the rest of New Testament preaching that he was talking about Christ and he was talking about the resurrection of Christ and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And he's talking about the gospel of Christ and what that meant and what they needed to do to obey it and the promises that are attached to it and the historical facts that were the substance of it. And all these particular matters were coming to bear and they didn't like what they were hearing and they were arguing with it. They were disputing with that particular matter. And it's not long before they become bitter and they're filled with hatred by verse 6, by verse 11, chapter 6. Then they secretly instigated men who said, 
we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So now they've carried it to a different level altogether. It seems as though they were concerned about the matter, maybe even angry over the growth of the church, and that they wanted to discuss it and dispute the matter and try to uh, uh, refute the teaching of Stephen, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't refute Stephen's wisdom. They couldn't refute Stephen's knowledge. And he was pressing them with regard to the facts of the gospel. So what do they do? If we cannot outreason him, then we must do away with him. And so they gathered false witnesses to testify against Stephen. And the false witnesses were going to say, they were told to say and instructed to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous things against Moses in the temple. Now Stephen probably had said to them in his teaching, we're no longer under the law of Moses any longer. It is fulfilled, Matthew chapter 5. We no longer live by the law of Moses. It was fulfilled and satisfied by the death of Jesus on the cross. Stephen probably had told them about the temple, that no longer was it a place of worship, but people could worship together as New Testament Christians would worship together. If under the old law, then he would be guilty of death, Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16. But they're not under the old law. They're under the law of Christ. And they're under Roman law as far as civil matters are concerned. And they surely have no uh, authority to take Stephen and put him to death, as we see they will do later in our study tonight. And so Stephen is pressing them. And again, I think Stephen's motive is pure in the matter. Uh, Stephen's motive is to help them see the truth of God's Word and the importance of obeying the Word of God. But yet now they've whereby they want to arrest, and by verse 12, do arrest Stephen and bring these false charges against him. Their approach is to stir up these perjurers who will lie about this testimony against Stephen and therefore have uh, him uh, tried before them. The false testimony is offered in verses 13 and 14. I'm still in chapter 6. And then when they are filled with hatred and they're filled with malice against him, they behold Stephen's face. And Luke tells us a very interesting thing about that in verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Acts chapter 6. Well, the Bible is saying they were filled with hatred and they were filled with malice. But this Christian man who's preaching about Christ, they see the countenance of a godly man. They see the countenance of a godly person. He doesn't have any kind of malice. He doesn't have any kind of ill will toward them. He is simply trying to explain, preach, and teach the truth of God's Word. But you know, every time the truth of God's Word is preached and proclaimed, it's going to bring about controversy. When the Word of God is faithfully, fully, forcefully proclaimed, controversy arises. It was that way in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. It was that way in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. Stephen was faithful, forceful, very bold in his proclamation of Christ and the Word of God. And some people simply didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to accept that kind of preaching and teaching. So because they could not outreason it, so they could not find an element about it, they in turn do away with him. It's the only alternative they have. That or obey it, which many had already done. 
as we read in earlier verse, verse 6. Many of the priests had obeyed the gospel. They were filled with envy and hatred and jealousy by this particular time. So Stephen is charged, and certain charges are brought against him, verse 11 and 13. Blasphemy against the law of God. That's one of the charges that you're guilty of. You said disparaging things about the temple, verse 13. And Stephen, you're disloyal to your own religion, verse 14. Stephen, what have you got to say for yourself? And thereupon opens the door to the longest sermon that we have in the pages of the New Testament. I'd like to analyze that sermon. Obviously, we won't be able to do all we'd like to because of the limitations of time. But we want to understand as much as we possibly can. And from that, Stephen makes three basic points that you and I should always remember. The first point that Stephen makes is about the affirmation of this from Israel's own Scripture. He goes to the Scriptures and he shows and proves his point, the affirmation from Scripture. Then he makes application of uh, Israel's history. And then there is the arraignment of Israel's children. Now I'd like to spend our time tonight studying these particular points, and I'll take them one at a time and just speak in a general fashion about each. And then at the end of our lesson tonight, we'll look at the reaction of the Jews and the outcome of this whole matter, constituting the third Sunday night seminar on the preaching of the New Testament. The first thing we'd like to look at is Stephen's affirmation of history. And he begins by talking about the God of glory. And he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. It is an interesting fact to realize that he begins with the God of glory, but this sermon ends with the glory of God over in uh, uh, the, about verse 55. It's a wonderful symmetry to the sermon. And the sermon is well thought out. And the sermon has a certain rationale about it that we don't want to miss. Abraham was called by God long ago, Genesis chapter 13, from the Ur of the Chaldees. The Ur of the Chaldees is an ancient city. The remains of Ur has been found. Excavations have been made with regard to this ancient Mesopotamian city. It is located between the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley. It is called Mesopotamia because it means in Greek between the rivers. Deep within the rivers was the ancient city of Ur. It was a highly populated city. In the midst of all this paganism and idolatry, God found a true, sincere heart, and his name was Abram. And God called Abram from the Ur of the Chaldees and told him to leave that land and go to a land which he would show him. And the Hebrew writer in Hebrews tells us he immediately left. He did it immediately. Just as soon as he was told to leave, he got up and he left. And he followed where God would lead him. And where did God lead him to? Haran. He followed him up, led him up to the Fertile Crescent, up into the northern portion of Palestine. And there at Haran, Abraham, when he left there, was 75 years old. His father Terah had died at Haran, 205 years old. And Stephen makes the point, that's the land where you now dwell. He says, now Abraham was not given any inheritance. In fact, he was not even given one foot of ground. The inheritance was to be for his offspring and for his children. 
his descendants would sojourn in this land, verse 6. And then it wouldn't be long that they would find themselves in Egyptian bondage, verse 7. But God would judge that nation for putting them into slavery for so many years. But they'd be delivered by deliverer, Moses, and Joshua. And then he makes the point about the covenant of circumcision in verse 8. He's talking about their history. And he uses history in a wonderful way to help them and to help us see all that God has gone through to bring about salvation. We look at all of the workings of God in the history of man. And there we see how important it is that we hear the Word of God and respond to it properly. God has gone to such great lengths, and He's making that point to the Sanhedrin people and to His Jewish accusers. He's saying, look at your history from the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then He talks about their descent down into Egypt. There they would go into Egypt. Joseph carried into Egypt because of the jealousy of his brothers. Stephen calls them the patriarchs. They were jealous of Joseph because of the favoritism that his father had given him. And they sold him into slavery. And Joseph finds himself into Potiphar's house. But God favored Joseph and God gave wisdom to Joseph and gave him the ability to interpret the dreams. And he's able to come out of the prison and he interprets the dreams of the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh makes him governor of all Egypt, Stephen says. And they're showing great blessing to, to uh, Joseph and favoring Joseph. But it wasn't long before a great famine came upon the land. And Jacob realized there was no place for us to get food. For them, in order to survive, they're going to have to go down to Egypt and secure food from the Egyptians. Now notice the three sub-points that he's making out of this. Number one, the brothers rejected Joseph. Number two, they had a second opportunity to receive him. And number three, they would either accept Joseph as a redeemer or they would die. And he's going to use those subpoints and develop those subpoints a little later on and apply them to Jesus Christ. He's going to say that just as they rejected Joseph, you're rejecting the righteous one. Just as they rejected Joseph and God gave him another him, they still rejected him. And now they even receive him as a deliverer, they're going to die. Well, that's important points for us to remember. By the time you get to verse 14 and 15, they're given the land of Goshen, and that's where Jacob and his family lived. It was a very fertile area, the northeastern portion of, uh, of uh, Egypt, and the land of Goshen. The Nile River would overflood every year. And the overflooding would bring very fertile soil into the lowlands, and it would be a type of natural irrigation for the lowlands. And they would enjoy a very fertile, prosperous place to live. So the king gave them this land in which to live, the land of Goshen. But yet Jacob would die, and his bones would be carried back to the grave of Heth, where Abraham had bought it from the sons of Heth. And the grave of Machpelah, Joseph's bones would be carried back to that place in Shechem where they would be buried and brought into life's other side. But then he talks about a new Pharaoh that arose up that knew not Joseph. Historians think that the Pharaoh of the time of Joseph was of the Hyksos dynasty. But now we have another Pharaoh, Pharaoh Ramses. Pharaoh Ramses did not know Joseph 
He did not. He probably knew who Joseph was. He probably knew of the background of Joseph. But he didn't acknowledge Joseph. He didn't honor Joseph. He didn't honor the family of Joseph. And for that reason, great persecution and suffering came upon the children of Israel. They were very prolific and they populated the land and they were very concerned about the population matter. Notice as he begins now the heart of his sermon where he shows great honor and respect for Moses. One of the accusations that has been leveled against him is that he's blasphemed the name of Moses, that he didn't have respect for his religion, but yet he shows great respect and honor for Moses. He says Moses was born during this time. He was laid in a little ark of bulrushes. And there God protected him. Even Pharaoh's daughter came and trained him. And he was trained in all the learning of the Egyptians. God had taken him and thus prepared him for that great day that he would be used. But guess what? They rejected Moses. They didn't want Moses as a deliverer. The point that he's making there is one day Moses was walking along and he saw where a Hebrew was being unjustly dealt with by one of the Egyptians. And Moses rose up to defend the Hebrew and slew the Egyptian. The next day Moses sees two Egyptian, two Hebrews in a quarrel. And he stands between them and says, Don't you know that you're brethren? Why are you quarreling? And one of the Hebrews pushes Moses aside and says, Who made you a judge and a ruler over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses realized that that news was out and he flees He flees Egypt and he goes to the land of Midian. Moses about 40 years old at the time that that took place. His point is they rejected their deliverer. They rejected their judge. They rejected their ruler. Moses would have been a ruler for them. Moses would have been a deliverer for them. But they rejected their ruler. They rejected their judge. And for 40 years he's in Midian, a Midianite shepherd. But on an occasion, Moses looks up on a hillside and he sees a sight he's never seen before. A bush that is set ablaze, but it is not consumed. And he goes up and he sees the sight. And a voice comes from that bush which says, Moses, take off your sandals for you're on holy ground. By verses 30 through 34, God is saying, God gave a second chance. He sends Moses back to the land of Egypt. He gives them the deliverer once again. And by the power of God and Aaron as his mouthpiece, they go and deliver the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He is their judge, their ruler, and their deliverer. Moses led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea miraculously and through the wilderness (coughs) wanderings for 40 years. Affirmation of history. And Stephen sort of races through this history quickly. As he's making the point, see how they rejected Joseph? You see how they rejected Moses? The only chance they had was with Joseph. The only chance they had to live was Moses. You see a pattern coming up? Now we get to the application of the matter. God raised up a prophet. Moses had said in the book of Deuteronomy, Him shall you hear in all things. And if you will not hear or listen to the prophet, you will be cut off from among the people. Moses himself made that declaration. The fathers rejected that in their hearts. So what did they do? They pressured Aaron to build a golden calf in the wilderness. And they took their jewelry and their earrings and their bracelets and they threw it into the fire and he molded and fashioned a golden calf. 
And while Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the finger of God himself, the children of Israel are down at the foot of Sinai worshiping an idol. God dealt with them because of their unfaithfulness. And for 40 years, God dealt with them. They're complaining and they're bickering and they're quarreling. And they would follow the leadership of the prophet. Though they continued to offer sacrifices to pagan gods throughout their history. He tells them of the matter of the temple and the tabernacle. He says in verse 44 through 45 that in this particular instance God was worshipped by the tent of witness. Verse 44. He says that God built the temple by means of aiding Solomon, the temple that you now live, now worship in. It was a great temple. The tabernacle was built according to the pattern that God had given Moses. And they were brought into the land. It was brought into the land of promise by Joshua as they crossed over the Jordan. And then as time would go along, the great temple would be built. But yet the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 66 that God is not confined to a tabernacle. God is not confined to a temple. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? In other words, God cannot be confined to a tabernacle in the wilderness or a temple in the city of Jerusalem. Why would you be so upset over the matter as to think that God does not reside in this temple any longer? And so he's telling them of the application of the history that they had lived. But he's making a third point, and it's a very important point. I call it the arraignment. He's charging the children of Israel, the Jewish people, They had resisted the teaching of God. They had resisted the Holy Spirit. And thus, of course, they had denied the Holy One of Israel. By verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You see, he's making that point now. How is it that they had resisted the Holy Spirit? They wouldn't listen to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. God was giving His will. God was giving His Word to them. But they wouldn't listen to it. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. Notice these Old Testament cliches. Perhaps we should study them for a moment. I'm in Acts chapter 7 and the verse is verse 51. Stiff-necked people. It's an Old Testament phrase which goes back to the ox who would bow his neck up or stiffen his neck so as not to place the yoke or allow the yoke to be placed on his neck to carry the burden or to do the toil. And he says, that's the way you are. You're like a stiff-necked ox. You refuse to do what God has told you to do. But then he goes on and says, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Oh, you're circumcised in the flesh, but you have not circumcised your heart, and you haven't circumcised your ears. You're not listening to God. You're rebelling against God. Here's the arraignment. The charges are now placed against him. And it's the third great portion of the sermon in Acts chapter 7. You've resisted the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And let it be known that when faithful gospel preachers are preaching the Word of God and they're doing that faithfully and a person goes away and will not listen or take heed to the teaching of the Word of God, they in turn are resisting the teaching, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is working through His Word here, and people are listening to it. But they may be stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and they refuse to listen to it. They, in turn, do what the Jews did on that occasion in the past. What had they done in the past? Well, they had persecuted and killed the prophets that God had sent them. What did they do? They rejected Joseph. Joseph was the only means that they had in order to survive, and they rejected him. They could either accept Joseph as governor over their lives, or they would die of starvation. Well, they turned around and rejected Moses twice. They rejected Moses and didn't want to take his leadership and follow his leadership. And yet Moses was the only salvation that they had, the only redeemer, the only one that could lead them out of the captivity, the terrible 400 years of captivity that they were in. And notice, they not only rejected Moses, they killed the prophets. God would send prophets to the children of Israel and teach them and plead with them and urge them to obey and listen to the Word of God and change their lives. And what would they do? They would kill the prophets. They would not listen to the Word of God. And now what have they done? He's saying in almost a climactic point in his sermon, you've killed the righteous one, the only one that can save us from our sins. You killed him. The only one that can redeem us from and give us forgiveness of sin and salvation. You put him to death. You're guilty. You're guilty of breaking the law. In fact, that's his next point. They did not keep the law. Why? Well, the fifth law said, Thou shalt not murder. And you murdered him on the cross. And you're guilty of it. By this time, they couldn't take any. They had a powerful, cogent sermon directed right at them and their needs. Again, I don't see Stephen as a man who's standing up there poking his finger at the audience and saying, you see there, you see there, you see there. I don't see him in his demeanor as a person who stood up before the audience and said, you know, it's about time somebody puts you all in your place and just preach it with such an attitude that he's almost happy about the Jews and their rejection. I don't see that at all. Now, sometimes I'll read a commentary or some discussion by someone about these matters, and I'll come across the attitude of the implication whereby they put Stephen almost in the kind of light where he's really uh, venting against the Jewish people, but I don't see that. I don't see that at all. I'll tell you why. Here you have a man, when they looked at his face, they, well, he had the face of an angel a godly person. And when they actually stoned him, he prays to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I see a man who is sincere. His motives are pure. And he's trying to get the people to understand God's will for their lives. And he's working with a hard-hearted group of people. And he probably knew that. He probably knew that this was either do or die, either teach this truth and they respond to it or they will put me to death. And he probably could see, as any speaker would be able to, the reaction of his crowd boiling up and boiling up and boiling up until the point where he gets to this matter of the law. God gave you the law and you didn't keep it. You even broke it. And they decided that's enough. And they had closed their ears and closed their heart and would not listen anymore. And the Bible says in a 
rather interesting passage, verse 54, that they ground their teeth at him. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Now I have to admit, this passage has always been interesting to me. When I was a young boy and I'd hear great gospel preachers stand up and they would preach about the stoning of Stephen, they'd preach about this sermon, I would just glued to what they were saying. And one of the preachers made this statement that I'll never forget. He said, and they were so mad that they bit the preacher. (laughs) Well, I think he got a little carried away in what he was saying. And when he said that, I thought, man, they bit the preacher? And uh, (laughs) I never would have thought of such. So I'll go back, and I'm just, and I'm reading, and I'm asking mom and dad about this thing. Actually, they did not bite the preacher. (laughs) The preposition in King James Version might lend itself to that idea. On They gnashed on him with their teeth, the King James says, But really, the preposition at would be better. They were filled with such emotion. They locked their jaws and would grind their teeth. They, in turn, hated him in such a fashion. But that's not all. The heavens are opened. And Stephen, by means of vision, sees Christ standing at the right hand of God. And he tells them about it. And when he tells them what he's seen by means of vision, they stone him to death. They can't take it. They will not bow before God. They will not change their wicked way. All they can think about is put him to death. Now, a lot of commentaries will take that passage where he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and I'm referring to verse 55. And a lot of points have been made out of that point about Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Some have said, and I'm inclined to believe that, When an important person walks into the room, we stand up out of respect for him or her. And someone that we would show respect to, we'd stand up for them. It's a gesture of respect. A number of Bible passages sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 is one of them. You and I have studied it. To show or to phrase it that way that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God expresses the idea that the great plan of salvation is complete. That all this has been done. And that Christ has accomplished the great will of God in offering salvation to the world and purchasing the sin and paying the price for sin for mankind. It could very well be that out of great respect for Stephen, Stephen sees this passage, sees this vision. And the passage is recorded for us to give encouragement to us and all those people, as Luke writes about it, that would face suffering and persecution by the hands of the Jews and then later the Romans. I thought, though, that there might be some more element to that, the standing of Jesus at the right hand of God. 
It could very well be that Jesus at the right hand of God, welcoming Stephen into the realm of paradise. You're giving up your life, your physical life, but you're going to enter into another life, a life that's just as real as the physical life that you've had. You'll go into paradise, waiting the judgment. It could be that Jesus is standing by the right hand of God to serve as Stephen's mediator, as there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Our advocates ready to defend us before God and His throne. This one is one of mine that I shed my blood for. Whatever the reason may be that Luke has included this historical note of the fact that Jesus stands at the right hand of God, it surely serves a great source of encouragement for us. That whenever things don't go our way and whenever things are more difficult, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who stands for us. And he said, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep is but a euphemism for saying that he died. I cannot help but think of John chapter 12 and verse 48 in this particular matter. When I think about the rejection of Israel to Joseph, to Moses, to the prophets, and now to the righteous one, their Savior. How many people reject the word of God today? We look upon the Jews, how hard-hearted could they be to reject this man who's preaching to them out of love in his heart. But every day, people reject the preaching of the Word of God. Please remember, John chapter 12 and verse 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. We're going to be judged by the words of Christ, whether we have received it or by having a stiff neck and uncircumcised heart. We refuse to bow our necks before the Savior and accept His word. Don't be that kind of person. Be the kind of person who will study and learn and follow truth wherever it leads you. And we learn such from great sermons like Stephen's in Acts chapter 7. If you're not a child of God, become one by the way the New Testament teaches. To repent of sin and confess faith in Christ, to be baptized in Christ, that is immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2 verse 38. Receive forgiveness of sin. To be added to the Lord's New Testament church. 
not a denominational body, but the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament, to accept no more, no less than what the New Testament authorizes. And I urge you to do that tonight. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?